Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. So it's a it's a full room, and um, you've probably noticed that the room has been getting fuller, and we are aware of that. A couple of people have reached out to ask about that, and if there's plans to remedy that. Um, and in this stage of a church plant, the the counsel that you typically get is to create another service. I think it's this is full enough that it would be good to have a second service. The problem is we don't want to do that. Because when you have two services, you become two congregations. Now there's all sorts of counsel, ideas, thoughts on what should be done. And I probably have read um, all of the counsel that can be said about this and had multiple conversations. I've probably done that more than anybody in this room about this service thing that we're, we're trying to figure out. And I'm still going to say it. I don't want to have a second service. Um, because I like us all being together as one church family. And at the same time, we also want to have room for anybody that wants to be a part of what the Lord is doing here. But I think there might be another way of doing that than just adding another service. So let's be praying about that together. I just wanted to give you a little bit of inside baseball there. I realize that the room is full, and I like it. I like us all being together. So just be praying with us. We'll probably have a team of people that discern that together as we go into 2022. So, all right, so I said up front, you don't have to ask, because I'm not sure yet. Um, preaching style. The other thing I want to start with is saying that I'm, if you're following along in these little videos on our Facebook page, you know that I'm attempting, I'm trying a new preaching style that is more conversational. Um, and there's a few reasons why I'm doing that, and I just want to clue you in on that as well before we get into the message. Uh, the first reason that I'm doing this, and instead of bringing my iPad up here and bringing this, not everybody should do that. Um, but that's what God is inviting me to do to practice teaching in a little bit different way. Uh, the first reason is because it forces me to not pretend I'm further along on my spiritual journey than I actually am. Because it would be easy for me to find highlights of every commentary and put it in a teaching and just read and talk about Scripture as though I am further along than I am. This is a way for me to hold myself accountable to make sure that as I'm forced to teach out of the overflow of my own personal growth in Christ, I'm not going to be able to fake that. I'm not going to be able to pretend that. Whereas um, it would be easy for me as a preacher, as a pastor, to project um, things in a way that I'm further along than I actually am in Christ. And I don't want to do that. I don't want to be able to pretend. So it's a way to hold myself accountable. And Paul tells Timothy in Scripture that if, if it's evident to people that you are growing in Christ, then they will grow in Christ. So that's the first way, the first reason. Another is because it avoids the appearance of a polished expert speaking to a bunch of people who aren't polished experts. I don't ever want Southside to feel like there's a couple polished experts theologically and they're going to tell us everything that we should think. I want Southside to be a place where we're learning how to discuss Scripture together, where we're all on the same journey together, um, because that's the actual truth. We are on this journey together. That's why we have these monthly Bible studies where I'm a participant 
And we're all kind of looking and pressing into a text together because we all, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you've put your faith in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit too, which means you can open up the Bible and understand it just as well as anybody can. So that's another reason why I want to um, do more of a conversational approach to teaching. Another thing, it helps me be more present and in the room. I'm really insecure about speaking out loud in front of people. It's really scary to do this every Sunday. And I would much rather like do this and hide behind this thing and just like, I'm going to just basically read this, what I put together, my best thoughts, my polished thoughts, instead of being forced to kind of speak off the cuff in, in the moment. So it helps me to be here and to actually look at you guys. Thank you. Oh, I love you guys, too. I love you guys, too, Jay. And the last one is, um, it demands a greater faith for me. I've been preaching the way that I've been preaching for 21 years um, in various contexts. And this is like, when I played basketball, I moved my set shot to a jump shot, and then I shot really poorly for a while. Um, But it was more effective, and it kind of feels like that. This is demanding me to put more faith that God's not going to let me look like a complete idiot up here, but it's a step of faith. And anything that forces you to put more of your faith in God and lessen your faith in yourself is a really, really good thing. So I actually wanted to serve as a model that way because each of you also have something that you're going to have to place more of your faith in God in order to do it. And I want this to serve as an example for you as well. So terrifying, yes. But, and I told our serve team before we start, if God doesn't show up in this, it's going to be terribly awkward and unfruitful. But if he does, if he does, it'll be something else. So um, all that to say, I'm still figuring out the time thing. So I probably should start this timer because I have no idea. Like when I was doing the iPad thing, I, don't you know exactly? I know exactly what 30 minutes looks like in my digital notes. I have no idea with this. I got some notes written out on a journal and I got my Bible. So I have no idea. So I'm going to try not to go for three hours today. We're going to try to keep it to the 30 minute mark, which is our goal. Um, but it could be like 15 minutes. I'm like, I don't have anything else to say. And that'll be that. More power to you. All that to say, have grace with me as I'm, I'm figuring this out. We'll figure this out together. We're going to do the second part of this teaching series I started two weeks ago, what Autumn teaches us about seasons of discipleship. And the idea of this is that you can learn things about God, and you can learn things about the path to spiritual maturity by observing creation by observing things that were firsthand made by God. And you can actually learn things about God and about our spiritual journey by observing the seasons. And autumn is a unique season because it's an in-between, it's a transition season from a very fruitful and beautiful and active and colorful season that is summer. And it's transitioning us from that to a season that's fairly barren. There's, it's not fruitful. It's not colorful. It feels a little bit more dead. 
And there are spiritual seasons like that. There are times when it's like the summer of our spiritual journey where things seem to be busy in a good way and full and fruitful and you're with people and you're having these great conversations about God together. You're having these wonderful prayers. You're reading scripture and it's coming alive to you. And then there's a season where it's like a, it's like a winter when you pray and it doesn't feel like it goes beyond the ceiling. And you're not experiencing deep community with people, even though you're with them. It just doesn't feel like the connection. And you're reading scripture and it just, it just can't sink in. There's winter seasons as well. Well, autumn is the season that transitions us from summer to winter. And there's things to be learned about how nature prepares itself for winter. And I want to talk a little bit about that for these next couple of weeks. And one of the things that we can do is consider the life cycle of a tree. Now, we're going to, we're going to look at um, nature as an example for just a little bit, and then we're going to actually go into Scripture, which speaks more clearly of these things. But there is a precedent in Scripture to look at nature. Jesus often would use nature and even seasons to teach in Scripture. Solomon in Proverbs said, consider the ant if you want to learn about diligence and preparation. So this isn't unprecedented in Scripture, but if you think of a tree moving from the season of summer to winter, what does it do to prepare itself? If you look at a broadleaf tree, broadleaf trees lose most of their humidity through leaves in the summer, through evaporation. And so what it does to guard that internal life force that is water is it creates these little, when, the, when it starts getting chilly outside, it creates these little um, the scar tissue at the base of the leaf stem. And the leaf ends up falling off, but it does that to protect, um, it, to protect itself from losing water. As it prepares for winter, it focuses, it seems to focus more on its internal world, its internal life, rather than bearing fruit, knowing that if it survives through this winter, as it's tending to its internal life, there will be another fruitful season coming. You don't see trees when it starts getting cold outside, like uprooting themselves and tiptoeing across, you know, fields and streets and going south where it's going to be warmer, they root themselves in and they prepare internally for it. Now, there's a lot to learn about our own spiritual journey by looking at these these trees. There's a lot of parallels. Perhaps autumn is spurring us to consider that there are some things in our lives that we ought to let go of for a season. That when we start to feel a little bit winter of the discipleship journey, that we start to feel like prayer is getting drier and scripture is getting drier, perhaps instead of getting more activistic in doing more, we focus on becoming more. And I think that's counterintuitive to a lot of us. That we think we just, like, I'm feeling drier, I'm feeling drier, I'm feeling drier. I need to, like, listen to ten times more teaching than we create these crazy goals. And we start working harder and getting more heroic. I need to just sit under more teaching or whatever it looks like. 
When maybe God's saying, maybe we just do less, let things fall, get less active, and learn to sit with me and discover what would it be like to be a disciple of Jesus in winter. So, how many of you, and this is me, like I'll, I'll answer first and say, yeah, definitely me. But if you're with me, raise your hand. Like how many of you, it, well, thank you. Thank you. you didn't, I didn't even ask the question yet. Man, you guys are so with me. I am so hyped right now. That's awesome. Man, we got people raising their hands, Nicole. We are getting there. All right. So how many of you, if someone asks you, how are you doing? Your knee-jerk answer is busy. Raise your hand if your knee-jerk answer is busy. How are you doing? It's busy. I'm crazy busy. There's so much going on. Well, there are seasons in our lives where that should be the case. There are seasons in our lives that's unavoidable. But if that's the permanent reality of your life, you are probably doing more damage to your soul than you realize. And you might get to a place where something breaks internally that can't be recovered. So this is a little bit of a, a warning because busyness is carbon monoxide to your spiritual life. You don't even realize it's happening. You can't taste it, you can't smell it, and it's suffocating your spiritual life. It makes you an anxious doer instead of a calm beer. <laughs> Beer. I just said beer in a sermon. <laughs> I see. See, if I had my if I had my digital stuff, I would I would have known not to say that. <laughs> so observing seasons is a helpful thing to do when learning about the spiritual journey. But what does Scripture have to say about this? Because, like I said before, Scripture is far clearer. And I love the, the Gospels because the Gospels are these biographical sketches of Jesus. And the Gospels like, present us with different situations that we actually face. Tense moments, awkward moments. Um, this one that we're going to look at today, someone is like hyper, hyper busy and frenetic and um, just spilling out her stress onto everybody else and spilling out her stress onto another woman who is not feeling that way, who's calm. And these are just really tense moments. But the beautiful thing about the Gospels is it drops God into those moments so that we can actually see what would God do if he were in this really tense, weird, crazy, awkward moment. And it's fascinating to see. And if you read scripture slowly and imaginatively, and you can actually put yourself in that moment that you're reading about, it's fascinating to see how God himself acts and what he says, what he does in those moments. So we're going to look at um, Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. So if you have your Bibles, you can follow along. If you don't have your Bibles, you can just listen. Listening is good too. But if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you just to follow along today. So um, let's, let's talk a little bit about Luke, because I think sometimes it's interesting to get a little background of the authors of Scripture, and even though we're just, we're just doing this one passage. Um, what do we know about Luke? Does anybody know anything about Luke, and if you're on staff at Southside, you're not allowed to say anything, but, but what do we know about Luke as an author in Scripture? Does anybody have any, any ideas you want to throw out? He was a doctor. Yeah, he was a doctor. Um, 
Paul says in Colossians 4.14, I think he calls him the beloved physician, Luke. Yeah, so he, and he's intelligent, he's articulate, he uses really, really great, clear language in Luke. It's a, it's a, it's a great book. Anything else? What else do we know about him? He's not Jewish, yeah, which is shocking. He's the only non-Jewish author in Scripture. And he's a, so that means he's a Gentile. Uh, Lucas is a, is a Greek name. And he's, he wrote more than any other author in the New Testament. And he's a non-Jewish writer, which is significant. He wrote more than Paul. He wrote Luke and Acts, which is like Luke part two. But that's significant that he's not Jewish, because if you read Luke, you see that he's actually going after and highlighting how Jesus accommodates non-Jewish audiences. So it comes out in his writing. Yeah, that's a big one. Anything else? Wait, wait, who said what? He didn't know Jesus. Yeah, he didn't know Jesus. He never met Jesus personally, which is fascinating because um, he was a first-rate historian. And though he didn't know Jesus personally, he probably had a practice in Antioch, uh, a doctor's practice in Antioch, and left that to follow Jesus. Probably didn't come to, come to faith until after Jesus was resurrected. Never met him, met him personally, but was a first-rate historian and interviewed tons of people that did know Jesus and got this story and wrote a very thorough, incredible account of the life of Jesus in Luke. And this is written to a man named Theophilus. Some people think that's, it's a symbolic and it's actually not a person, but that was a common name. And I actually think it was a person. What does this tell us about Luke? That he wrote this whole book of the Bible for one person, his commitment to discipling people. It says a lot, actually. It says a lot, even though he knew other people would be reading it. Anything else? Those are all great. He was a companion of Paul, a friend. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, which was the last book that Paul wrote, um, Paul says, everybody left me except for Luke. Paul was about to be martyred for his faith, so it would have been very dangerous to stick around with him. He was in Roman prison, was going to be killed for his faith, and everybody abandoned him except one loyal friend, and that is Luke who probably went on thousands and thousands of missionary miles with him. So Luke is a pretty fascinating person himself. And he writes, uh, when he writes, he gives important details. He doesn't put things haphazardly in the passage. So this will be, there's some things that I want us to catch. And all I'm going to do is just read through this passage, and we're going to talk about it as I read through it, and that's going to be enough for today. We're going to pull out more implications in the next couple of weeks. But are we ready? Luke chapter 10, verse 38. Let's start reading there. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. So Martha, you probably know that name if you've read the Bible before, Martha and Mary, sisters, their brother was Lazarus, Jesus later resurrected him from the dead, um, or resuscitated him divinely from the dead. He didn't keep that resurrected body, so it's not technically resurrection, but he did some pretty incredible things for them. And he would probably often stay with them when he was going through the area. When Martha invited Jesus into her home, it was assumed she would feed him and all of his companions because hospitality was such a, a big deal back then. And if you know about following Jesus, um, 
uh, through Luke, you know that he would get hangry. And Luke was the book that someone else wrote a book about this and made it famous that he was either on his way to his meal or eating a meal with someone or leaving a meal. He ate all the time in Luke. So it was not a bad thing that Martha was going to make this meal for him. She invited him. Martha probably assumed that her sister Mary was going to help with the meal. They probably had done this before. So Jesus always has an entourage. Everyone's coming over to the house. Martha and Mary are going to feed them because hospitality was huge in that place in that time. Verse 39, and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Remember, Martha probably expected that Mary would help. The house is probably full. Mary probably started out helping Martha prepare food. And all of a sudden, Mary just leaves her and sits down at the feet of Jesus the house is full. Martha's trying to get food. She, they're running out of food. Who knows what's going on, but she's stressed about it. She's anxious about it. And she's frustrated because Mary is supposed to be helping her. Why do I have to do everything? Why am I the one stuck doing this? This isn't fair. This isn't right. Why can you just leave and go have Sunday school class right now? We're trying to serve and you're leaving me. Out. Jesus is not going to like this. He'll, get, he'll be on my side for this one. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him. That's bold. Jesus is teaching a crowd in her house. And Martha walks up. I mean, put yourself in the situation. Put yourself in the passage. Imagine it. Martha walks up to him. He's in the middle of some profile. It's Jesus. It's interesting what he's saying. And she stops him. She approaches him. And Mary, what's Mary thinking? probably knowing what's going to happen, probably knowing she's going to get scolded, probably knowing she's in trouble. What's Martha going to say? She went up to Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care? That's a heck of a thing to say to Jesus, isn't it? <laughs> do you not care? Well, he probably does. He's probably the most caring person in history. It's the same thing the disciples said in Mark 4.38. They were in a boat in the sea, and it was a storm, and it was really bad because even the fishermen were scared who were used to the sea. And where's Jesus? He's asleep. He's taken a nap in the stern of the boat on a cushion in the middle of this terrible storm. And the disciples go up to him and like, teacher, do you not care? Same thing, same question. I wonder, I wonder if you've ever started a prayer like that. Like, God, do you not care that this is happening to me? Do you not care that it seems like, you know, I'm the only one working on this and everybody else is just getting to sit and listen to you? Do you not care that um, whatever it is? Remember what we said about self-pity? It's one of the first things to derail us in our spiritual journey. When we start getting focused on ourselves and what we're doing and what other people aren't doing is when we get in trouble. And when we accuse of Jesus of not caring, we know that we're probably, the perspective needs to shift on our part because we know that's probably not true. Do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? 
Serving is great, isn't it? Like, isn't this, that, that was the last object lesson that Jesus left for his disciples before he was crucified, that serving is a really, really good thing and we're supposed to serve. She's not, and I am. And she would have known by then that Jesus liked people serving. Do you not care that I'm serving everybody and she's not? It was a rhetorical question. I, I think she didn't want the answer because she didn't give him space to answer because then she said, tell her then to help me. He was probably like, I didn't even get to answer your question to tell you if I did care, but have you ever done that? God, would you tell this person to do this to make it easier for me? That's triangling. Triangling is when I'm against this person, I'm going to pull you over here on my side so you'll be against this person too. That's what she did. She was triangling Mary with Jesus. She was pulling Jesus on her side and say, let's be against her together. Does Jesus bite for that stuff? Probably not. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. According to Vincent's uh, Word Studies, which is a, a book that helps you understand more of the original language, anxious is more of an internal word. It's focused on the internal life of someone. Troubled is the external in other words, he's saying, your inner chaos is spilling out into everyone else. You're anxious, and we can see it because you're troubled. You could make coffee nervous, you're so anxious. You're like buzzing with stress, and it's coming out of your pores. We can see what's happening internally by how you're treating everyone around us. Slow down. You're anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Now, the word portion in Scripture is often used to describe people's relationship with God. Psalm 16, 5 says, the Lord is my portion. Lamentations 3, 22 through 24 talks about the Lord being your portion. And what it means is, everything that I need in life is in Him. I don't need anything else. He is my portion which means he will provide for me, he will protect me, he will take care of me, he will shepherd me, he'll give me every good thing as long as I walk uprightly. That's Psalm 84, 11. When God is your portion, who cares about whatever else is happening in the world? Worst thing that happens is you immediately are ushered into his presence. That means you died. That would be pretty fantastic to be with Jesus immediately. When God is your portion, nothing else happening around you matters. You can love your enemies even. So this language, Jesus is saying, Mary has chosen me as his portion. Now let's think about this for a second though, because, and this is it, this is the application for today. I used to think that this passage was telling Martha, see, see Mary right here, you're up serving people. Mary's sitting at my feet, which is the posture of disciple, which, by the way, was very unusual at that time that a woman 
was sitting at the feet of Jesus because rabbis, these Jewish teachers, had disciples, but they were all men. It would have been very unusual for a woman to be in the posture of discipleship for Jesus and for him to allow it and say, leave her alone. It was really cool. He, brought, he broke all sorts of trends. But I used to think that Jesus was saying to Martha, you should be like Mary. You should stop what you're doing and stop doing stuff and stop serving and be like her. You should be sitting at my feet too. Do you think that's what he meant? Was that what he rebuked her for? What did he rebuke her for? You're anxious and troubled about many things. I think the lesson for us is the same thing when Jesus, after he was resurrected, was walking with Peter and he was giving Peter some bad news, like how Peter was going to die. And Peter sees John, who was probably young. John was probably 13 or maybe even younger than that at the time, when he was tagging along, following, and Peter looked back at him and said, hey, what about John? What's going to happen to John? And Jesus essentially says, mind your own business. What happens to John? That is no concern of yours. You focus on you. You're worried and concerned about many things. So Jesus says to Martha, you're worried and concerned about many things. And I think what he's saying to her is, there's a way to serve me and these people in this room and only be focused on me. It's the sacrament of the, mo of the moment. There's a way to be doing anything that you're doing in life and doing it as a way that's glorifying God. And doing it in a way that you're focused on Jesus. And not worried about many things. That's called having your mind focused on the kingdom of God. What if the deepest reality of your life was the presence of Jesus in every moment of your life? Would that change the way you live? Is there a way to serve people, food, and do it in a way where the Lord is your portion? Yeah. He wasn't telling Martha... Stop what you're doing and sit. He was telling Martha, do what you do in an act of worship because I kind of like it when people serve others too. And that's the takeaway from today because if you know me that I lean contemplative, I have to prune my life so that I can spend a lot of time intentionally thinking about God and Scripture. And so it'd be easy for me as a pastor to say, all you people who are active and doing stuff and you're not as important. And Jesus would rebuke me for that because he would say, no, you wouldn't be here without them, first of all. We'd be standing in a field somewhere where I just talk about stuff. And then he would say, I think what they're doing is every bit as important and if they're doing is, is an act of worship, is every bit as fruitful. So whether you're a Mary or a Martha, and, and I don't even know how you would divide those two, but whoever you are, you can live every moment of your life continually aware of the deepest realities that Jesus is with you. And that just might change the way you do the stuff you do. That's my first idea with this passage. Next week, we'll dig into it again, and we'll pull out some, we'll tease out some other applications of this passage, and we'll do the same the following week.
And then we'll start our Christmas series, which I'm really excited for. How many days till Christmas? 48. 48 days till Christmas. I love Christmas. Oh, you, you have no idea. Okay. All right. Let's pray. <laughs> well, Father, uh, thank you that... That however you've gifted us to serve, um, whatever you've called us to do in playing our role in your church, in our role in your kingdom, we can do it with a single-minded focus on the kingdom, on the presence of Jesus through the Holy Spirit in a way that makes the sacrament of the moment a real joy in a way that infuses every moment of our life with, with deeper meaning. And I just be the first to say, I, I want that. That's what I want. If part of the spiritual journey is just becoming more spiritually minded, that's what I want. For me and for everybody here at Southside. So that our life becomes filled with meaning, filled with potential spiritually, and the kingdom here on earth actually becomes more and more real to us. And the things that we do serve as a tool for a deeper experience in our own hearts of your kingdom and in the hearts of the people around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.